Almighty God, we would ask this morning that you would open our eyes to see your beauty, open our ears to hear your voice, and open our hearts to receive your grace. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know, Jimmy, if this moves up. Does this move up at all? No. Okay. I feel incredibly tall today. Recently, I was reading about one of the most surprising popular tourist sites in Italy. It's in the city of Verona, and there in a basilica, this wonderful Romanesque cathedral from the 10th century, stands a unique statue, that of St. Zeno. The church is actually built on the burial site of St. Zeno, who was the bishop of Verona from A.D. 362 to 380. And there are two unique things about the statue of St. Zeno. First, he was as a bishop in Italy, but he originally came from Mauritania in West Africa. So he is referred to quite distinctively as the Black Bishop of Italy. But what's most unique, and which is very unusual for portrayals of saints, is that he's smiling in the statue. For he was known to have a real sense of humor, and in this statue, he's actually laughing. Hence, he's known worldwide as the Laughing Bishop, and it draws many thousands to the city of Verona every summer. A laughing saint. One of my favorite writers is the late novelist Frederick Buechner, who was also a Presbyterian minister, and he came to faith in an interesting way. While living in New York City as a young writer, He attended a large Presbyterian church that was pastored by the renowned Presbyterian minister George Buttrick. And in a sermon, Buttrick said, Christ is crowned in the hearts of those who love him and believe in him in the midst of confession, tears, and great laughter. And it was those words, great laughter, which he had never heard applied to faith before, that reached out to him at that time in his life. And laughter is truly one of the most profound words in faith, albeit infrequently associated with it. As the late author Oswald Sanders said, should we not see that the lines of laughter about the eyes are just as much marks of faith as are the lines of care and seriousness? And perhaps this helps explain why the 14th century Italian poet Dante titled his great allegorical poem on the faith journey toward God, The Divine Comedy. I'm also reminded of that marvelous mystery novel by the late celebrated Italian novelist Umberto Eco, The Name of the Rose. Some of you will remember that. Where laughter plays such an important role related to faith and was actually made into a film as well. And if you've read the novel or seen the film, you may remember that it's about monks in a monastery during the medieval era. And throughout the story, there are debates on the subject of laughter. One monk, Jorge, argues that laughter is evil, while William of Baskerville, a Franciscan friar, argues in favor of laughter and comedy. And there's a fascinating conversation in the film that goes like this. Jorge writes, says, I trust my words didn't offend you, Brother William, but I heard people laughing at laughable things. 
But you Franciscans, however, belong to an order where merriment is viewed with indulgence. And William said, yes, it's true. St. Francis was much disposed to laughter. And Jorge responds, laughter is a devilish wind that deforms the face and makes humanity look like monkeys. And William, monkeys do not laugh. Laughter is particular to humanity. As is sin, Jorge said, Christ never laughed. Can we be so sure, responds William. And Jorge, there's nothing in the scriptures to say that he did. And William answers, there's nothing there to say that he did not. It's an interesting question. How much did Jesus laugh? When we think of Jesus, we usually are only thinking really about the last three years of his life. We almost know nothing about 80% of Jesus' life. What was Jesus doing Living, what was he like living there in Nazareth for 30 years as a carpenter or a stonemason? There's a humorous short scene in a movie that I'm actually not necessarily the biggest fan of, Mel Gibson's The Passion. But in the scene, and it's a marvelous little scene, Jesus, a carpenter, is making a dining room table. Now, at that time, people didn't use higher tables and chairs. They hadn't been invented yet. They ate on the ground. And so we see Mary, his mother, coming out to see what Jesus is doing, and she's mystified by this table, and she asks him what it is. And Jesus replies that it was commissioned by a rich man to eat upon, and as it seems so high, since he hadn't made the chairs yet, she asks him, does this rich man like to eat standing up? And they laugh, and they laugh, and they laugh, hysterically with it all a table and Jesus then explains to her that he will be making furniture to sit upon tall chairs and they continue to laugh and Mary walks away saying about the new invention of the table it will never catch on <laughs> but it's a glimpse of a joyful Jesus that children later loved to be around Certainly, as I think about those individuals whose faith has most profoundly influenced mine, they are individuals not only of great spiritual depth, but they also had a natural disposition toward laughter. One individual who fits the bill and whose writings on faith have influenced many thousands over the years is the early 20th century English writer G.K. Chesterton. Just listen to one description of him. He weighed about 300 pounds usually had a cigar in his mouth. He walked around wearing a cap or a crumpled hat, tiny glasses pinched to the end of his nose, sword stick in hand, and laughter blowing through his mustache. I love it. Relishing laughter. Chesterton was often called a jester for God, a jongleur de Dieu. Chester wrote, Chesterton wrote, humanity is separated from the hyena by true laughter. The idea of laughter being linked with spiritual depth is what the medieval saints called holy hilarity. It's a laughter related to the soul. And throughout the scriptures, we see laughter is referred to many times where people laugh, and even actually God laughs in the scriptures. 
And of course, there are all types of laughter, from nervous laughter to skeptical laughter to joyous and celebrative laughter. Laughter, in fact, has many voices that reveal different things about us. Sarcastic laughter tends to humiliate. But the giggles of children oblivious of themselves cheer us with their unconstrained joy. And for jokes, it is often said that we laugh three times when we hear the joke, when it's explained to us, and then when we finally understand it. In our first reading today, found in the ancient book of Genesis, we encounter a lot of laughter. Two types, really. The dismissive laughter of disbelief and the laughter of celebration that comes just after the reading. In our reading, we're told that the matriarch Sarah, Abraham's wife, laughs at the impossibility of God's promise to her and then lies to deny her skeptical laughter. And the context is that of Abraham receiving these three mysterious strangers whom he gives a royal welcome to. Standing at the entrance of the Bedouin tent, Sarah secretly listened in on Abraham as he spoke to these three visiting travelers as they gave him a promise. Sarah, your wife, will bear a son. This was the second time that Abraham had received this promise. When he heard it the first time in the previous chapter, we read that he fell down and laughed and said, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? And will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? A little earlier at the age of 99, when God told Abraham that he'd be the father of a multitude of nations, there was a lot of laughter all about after that. Now, in our reading today, Abraham's 100 and Sarah's 90. And we're told that Sarah, somewhat sneakily, was listening into their conversation at the tent entrance. And when she hears this astonishing announcement by the visitors, she responds in the identical manner that Abraham had previously and we read, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, Have I grown old and my husband is old, that I should still have pleasure? The 17th century Dutch artist Rembrandt twice depicted this moment in his artwork. And both artworks are very telling. The first time was in 1646 in a very small oil painting. It was a miniature. And the second time that Rembrandt depicted this scene was in a small etching that he did 10 years later. In 1656, it's actually on the cover of your service sheet, and you may want to turn there. Both of Rembrandt's artworks show Sarah secretly listening in, peeking out the door, hidden in the shadows. But if you look closely, you almost need a magnifying glass, you'll see a subtle smile just beginning to take shape on Sarah's face, ever so slight. Sarah laughs because it all sounds preposterous finding the whole idea ridiculous. Sarah laughed because, the absurd of the, because of the absurd disconnect she felt between God's possibility and promise and human possibility. And her response is not entirely surprising, is it? From a human perspective, her unexpected worldview was reasonable. Things like this do not happen. But her doubt also led to the punchline of the story, which comes just after our reading. And the visitor asked her, is anything, and this is what it's all about, is anything 
too wonderful for the Lord. And so ultimately, her laughter was not really coming from a negative disbelief. Rather, it was a deep dismay and questioning as to whether God can actually be that good to her. You see, it's often the case that many have a firm faith and an unwavering belief in God, but without any real expectation that God will actively be involved or intercede in their lives or even seemingly do the impossible, dare say even wondrous. It's a faith that never denies God being at work in our world, but it also never anticipates that overwhelming goodness of God in our own personal affairs, albeit even when one may be secretly hoping and even longing and praying for it. There's a sense that we all live with this kind of inner tension where we know that God is the embodiment of complete goodness, yes, but we're not able to fully believe that we may experience it ourselves in an overwhelming way. Sarah had remarkable faith in God, but found it difficult to believe that God would do something extraordinary in her own life. But you know what's so special about this story? Regardless of Sarah's disposition, God does not look on her negatively. We read the Lord was gracious to Sarah and did for Sarah what God had promised. And that reflects what God is all about. In the language of our reading, God is essentially about turning our laughter into laughing, turning our questioning, our inability to fully grasp how wonderful our Creator is into experiencing God's goodness for ourselves firsthand. And I love the way all the suspense in our story ends. The suspense has actually been building here for about six chapters and one day, long past the laughter of it all, in her 90th year, Sarah comes to Abraham and said, Abraham, I've got something to tell you. <laughs> and all is reversed in the end. For we read Sarah saying, God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this will laugh, will celebrate with me. Her laughter, which at first was due to her inability to believe God's goodness was for her in such a stupendous way, is now a full expression of celebrating God's goodness in the deepest dimension. This kind of laughter only comes from experiencing the beauty of God's character and God's faithfulness in our lives. And as all of God's actions toward us are prompted by love, they therefore can always end in one way or another in celebration. Sarah's laughter is an appropriate reminder that God is a God of beautiful surprises, often during what may seem the most hopeless of circumstances. I love the way the contemporary Anglican writer Maggie Ross shares about all of this. She writes, And the vision of reality that emerges brings us to laughter, blessed laughter that reveals, laughter that heals, laughter that appreciates, laughter that rejoices in barriers broken, laughter that adores, laughter with tears that leaves us willingly helpless to do nothing 
but to be drawn into the abyss of God's joy. We normally think of Abraham and Sarah as models of faith, and even virtue, for that matter. But our reading reminds us that they were not saints, or they're just like us. And there's profound comfort in being reminded that nothing, neither us nor our situations, constitute an ultimate obstacle to God's beautiful surprise in our lives. And I love the name Abraham and Sarah gave their son, Isaac, which in Hebrew means one laughs. Naming their son Laughter was a reminder that God is ultimately about turning the laughter of impossibility, whatever it is, into a laughter of celebration of God's goodness towards us. I close with some words from Malcolm Muggeridge, the late British author who was a mentor to me, that he used in an address at my own theological college. It happens as it has happened innumerable times, and it goes on happening. The testimony to this effect is overwhelming. Suddenly caught up in the wonder of God's love, flooding the universe, made aware of the stupendous creativity which animates all of life and our own participation in it. Every color brighter, every meaning clearer, every shape more shapely, every note more musical, and every word written and spoken more explicit. What other fulfillment is there that could possibly compare with this? A fulfillment that transcends all human unfulfilling and yet is accessible to all humans. And thus fortified, we can laugh and need not despair. In the name of the one who brings us divine laughter.